I always think that when Ian reads the lesson, you don't really need to hear a sermon after it, actually, especially from such a great passage. Let's just bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Lord Jesus, I pray that you will speak to us this morning through these very familiar words and that we, we may hear your will for our love and for our lives. Amen. Well, we're continuing our walk through the Bible, um, following the We Make the Way by Walking book, and uh, I'm the fortunate preacher who gets the opportunity to speak from uh, 1 Corinthians 13. I also feel very fortunate, Ruth, that I'm the first person your son is going to hear preach. This (laughs) may have a terrible impact on his development, but I'm full of hope, and I count it a privilege. I want you to know. The problem with this passage is it is so familiar. And I have to say to you, I'm a great note taker. And so as I was preparing for this passage, I uh, sought through my notes to see if I'd heard any other sermons on it. And sure enough, there was one dated 1980 from David Watson, a a very uh, great preacher whose ministry was primarily based in York. Uh, I found another from David Pawson, another David. Um, He's been a big influence on my life as well. His sermon was probably dated in the 1970s, as far as I could tell. And to my great surprise, I also also found a sermon from me, which I'd preached here only a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. It's pretty depressing uh, when a congregation can't remember what the preacher said. It's even more depressing when the preacher can't remember <laughs> that a year ago he preached from the same passage. And as I looked at the sermon, you'll not be surprised by this, I thought it was pretty good actually. Um, <laughs> and I also realised that there was nothing in it that I wanted to repeat. I think it says something for the richness of Scripture that you can preach within a year from the same passage and want to say different things because there are new things in it. And the problem with 1 Corinthians 13 is it's such an impressive passage. It is so eloquent. It is so beautiful. It is so full of wonder. It is so familiar to us that it seems that to preach from it is to dissect that beauty, rather like dissecting a flower and feeling that actually there really isn't very much left when you've done it. You can be a bit overawed by the eloquence of this uh, passage, actually, a bit intimidated by it, and um, I don't want to be that. Now, we've all heard sermons from 1 Corinthians 13 because we've all been to weddings. You know the kind of stuff. Um, Julia, be patient with John when he leaves his socks under the bed. You know, uh, John, be kind to Julia when she forgets to put the rubbish bins out. You've heard all this kind of stuff at weddings. And um, the interesting thing is, um, although I'm not saying that scripture isn't appropriate in that context, that wasn't the context that Paul wrote these words for. You see, we see 1 Corinthians 13 as a kind of jewel by itself, but it was written after 1 Corinthians 12 and before 1 Corinthians 14. It was part of a continuous letter. And as one great preacher has said, if you preach a text out of context, then it just becomes a pretext. In other words, we need to think, what was Paul trying to say to the chaotic church in Corinth? And what he was saying was, the use of gifts in this church needs a little bit of moderation. Some of you have got the gift of tongues, some of you have got the gifts of prophecy, some of you have got this gift and that gift, and you're really keen to use them. But let me say something, says Paul, if you don't use them in the context of love, you might as well 
not have them at all. So that's Paul's message. It's a message to the church. It's a message to our church about the way that we interact together. I mean, I think it's true that you can have some very spiritual people who are not terribly loving, actually. I grew up with one when I was a student Christian in Sheffield. Uh, He was in one sense a lovely guy, but he was red hot on gifts of the spirit and on charismatic things and insisted that at our hall of residence prayer meetings we were always speaking in tongues and always doing this and always giving prophecies and always having dreams. I have to tell you a funny story about this. Uh, He once said, I'm going to pray that God will give me a message in a dream. So the next week we said to him, his name was Sid, we said, well, what did God say to you? He said, well, it's confusing really, Rick. He said, in my dream, I dreamt that I was having a dream and that God spoke to me. And I can't remember what he said, which, (laughs) anyway, I... I tell you the story of my sad friend Sid. I don't want to be rude about him, actually, because he was gracious enough at least to stay with the group, which many others didn't, who went off and did their own thing. Exactly the kind of thing that Paul was saying shouldn't happen. Well, let's look at the structure of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul, like all Baptist preachers, and we've plenty of evidence that he was a Baptist, um, (laughs) talks about the three Ps of this passage. The first is, he says, the preeminence of love in verses 1 to 3. He says nothing is more important than love. It doesn't matter whether we've got faith that can move mountains. It doesn't matter that we know all of God's secret plans. How special would that be? If we haven't got love, he says, it's worth nothing. And then at the end of the passage, in verses 8 to 13, he talks about the permanence of love. He says, you know, everything is going to pass away. Prophecy will pass away. Teaching will pass away. All these things will pass away. In the end, there'll only be three things left. Faith, hope, and love. And love, he says, is the most permanent. Why is that? Because we cannot say that God is hope or that God is faith, but we can say God is love. It's the very nature of the Almighty. And then in verses 4 to 7, what Paul does is do the practical stuff. He talks about the practice of love. And that's what I'm going to preach about this morning. Um, I love to share this picture of the church. And I realize there needs to be a respectful silence when I do, while you all look to see if you can see yourself on the picture. It took me a few minutes to find myself hiding at the back. But, you know, as I look out on a sea of faces this morning... Um, What a different group of people we are. I mean, I'm looking at people, nurses, uh, bankers, um, taxi drivers, um, odd job men, doctors, teachers, lawyers. I mean, we're an incredibly diverse group. Some of us are um, quite well off, quite entrepreneurial. Others of us aren't. Some of us are quite confident, pushy people. And others of us are quiet and perhaps would describe ourselves as pushed. But, you know, we're all different. (laughs) And we all come here um, because of our love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a remarkably diverse group of people. And the funny thing about that is that sometimes we can be a bit intimidated. Well, that's too strong a word. A bit uneasy, perhaps, about our differences. About the fact that, you know, she's very different from me and 
He voted the other way in the Brexit referendum. Could you believe that? Half my friends did that, I discovered. Maybe I voted the wrong way. But, you know, um, that sense of just being a bit anxious about difference, it can happen in any community. And I want to play you a video clip now about that, about how, even though we're different, we actually have many things in common. Now, this is a bit of an edgy video clip. It's not a Christian video clip, so you may not agree with everything in it. But its message, which is that we all can be together despite our differences, is a very Christian message. Incidentally, this is a Danish video clip, so even the Danes living in a small con- country may have some issues together. And I think it's very powerful and relevant to what Paul was saying to the church in Corinth. Whether Corinth was as varied as the Danish people you're about to see portrayed, I don't know. Have a look. Yeah, TV2, rather interesting commercial for a television company, isn't it? But a great message. And a Christian message, I think, because I believe that God's Holy Spirit is is a team spirit. The Apostle Paul was always concerned about unity in the church, unity in diversity. He didn't want people to be the same because we're all different. But he did want people, through their common love of the Lord Jesus, to, to embrace the differences and through the Holy Spirit, well, to get along. And how do you do that without the magic formula of love? That was the context of love that Paul was talking about. And he, you know, he talks about a very practical love, not the Linus in the Peanuts cartoon strip that says, I love mankind, it's just people I can't stand. No, Paul uses this agape word. It's used 250 times in the New Testament. It's a special word, it's a new word to describe the kind of love that you need to get along with each other. The kind of love that God demonstrated to us. Very practical. And, um, you know, for us, it's part of our values to love generously. When did you last love generously? Do you love generously this week? Can you think, yeah, I really loved generously then? It's hard to do, isn't it? It's even harder to see the last bullet point on the slide and to see that Paul makes 15 points about love and dreading that Rick may do the same. The good news is I'm only going to make four, and that's exceptional, really, for a Baptist preacher. The first is that love is patient. And, you know, the word that Paul uses for patient, I love it, is long-tempered. Now, can I confess, you have in front of you the least patient person on the planet. I I can sometimes... um, Well, let me just say this. On Thursday, uh, rather than join the 12-mile queue on the M25 that I experienced at 5 o'clock just before the Dartford River crossing and sit in it for four hours, I thought it would be better to go the entire opposite way and therefore did a circular tour of London around the M25, M1, M40, M4, you know the route, all the way. 100 miles instead of 30 miles. But at least I kept moving, I said to myself. A symbol of my patience. (laughs) How can we be patient in love? Well, we can sometimes pause before we hit send on an email. We can sometimes pause before we say something to somebody. Um, You know, we can give people the benefit of the doubt. We can um, just, you know, um, 
say, as I often do when I'm behind slow and elderly people in supermarkets, Rick, be patient. You'll be like this one day too. And you'll be even more crotchety, probably. Love is patient. I'll never forget um, being uh, at a church at an evangelistic meeting and uh, several people, about 12 people, made responses of faith. And one lady, probably in her 30s, came forward. And she was a bit, bit tearful. It was obviously an enormous moment when she was inviting Christ into her life. But much more overwhelmed with grief, apparently, was a, an elderly lady in the congregation. And so much so that you know, we went to her and said, are, are you okay? And she said, oh yes, I'm okay. This is my daughter. And I've been praying for her for 40 years to make this step of faith. Love is patient. And love also is kind, says Paul in verse 4. Um, the word he uses is uh, useful, you know, to seek out needs, to help others, to forgive wrongs, not to give people a hard time. There are in this church some lovely examples of kindness. I mean, Andy's made reference to the Wednesday Fellowship. There's a team of people who cook and a team of people who give people lifts. This is unglamorous stuff, you know but it's genuine kindness in action. And in our home groups, too, there are a lot of kindnesses going on, quiet kindnesses that you never get to hear about. Little donations and gifts and thoughts and prayers. You know, that's what home groups are about. And also, there are many of you with elderly parents, uh, which is not the most rewarding of jobs, but you're honoring your mother and father and you are doing what you can for them, knowing that they're not going to get better or fitter, and that is kindness in action, I think. Some people say it's better to be kind than right. I have to say I find no biblical basis for that, although it's a great sentiment. Um, it certainly would be better for us as a church to be known to be kind and right because the church is always seen as a place that you know, has got hard views and condemns others and is narrow-minded. I think we can be kind and right, actually. And perhaps we all need to emphasize the kindness. Two points to go and I'm done. Love is not rude, says Paul. I do think this is a surprising thing to put in, actually, that love is not rude. And I've been doing some work on this recently in, in a business context of looking at what the Harvard Business Review called the cost of incivility, particularly, actually, in the context of the health service. And uh, the research is fascinating and terrifying. You can see the numbers uh, in front of you. I hope you can see them anyway. You know, 80% of people who you're rude to just spend time thinking about that. 38% you know, reduce the quality of their work or their time at work, or worse, they take it out on other people and they show less enthusiasm for the organization. In other words, you have a rude word with a co-worker, you have a rude word with somebody, it has a big impact on them. And think in church, where actually we're supposed to be nice to each other and you're rude to somebody, it has a really big impact on their lives. So I'm now about to tell the most awful story about myself being rude. Can I just say it was a long time ago. <clears throat> it was nevertheless terrible. Um, you'll probably remember nothing else from this sermon except this story, but here goes anyway. 
I was with a group of students, about 60 students. Um, I was uh, speaking to them about Ephesians, uh, actually the whole book of Ephesians in a weekend. And I'm sitting in a room surrounded by students around me. And there's, uh, you know, there, there's a small room, there's not enough space, there's about 60. And there's a lady behind me, um, apparently with a pen going you know, really irritatingly. And I said, feeling really good about it, I'm quite proud, I said, would you stop that please? It's really distracting to me as a speaker. Rather rude. And she said, I'm sorry, Rick. Actually, I'm blind, and this is a braille note taker. Well, <clears throat> how, how good do you feel about yourself <laughs> when that happens? I, of course, so I should have done, profoundly apologised to her and later actually gave her um, a whole series of uh, CDs with uh, Ephesians on so she could listen to it. But I felt so humbled and I learned a lesson. Don't be rude. However good you feel momentarily, don't be rude. It's not loving and it's so painful. Well, lastly, Paul says, keep no record of wrongs. Um, my wife and I are pretty keen thank you letter writers. And my wife, who's not here at the moment, so I can say this, is a real recorder of those who don't write thank you letters, can I just say. <laughs> I joke with her that she can still remember back in 1986 that somebody didn't write a thank you letter for something. So, uh, and I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure it is right to keep a record of wrongs, you know? It's tempting sometimes, but um, God doesn't do that. The whole story of the prodigal son is that God welcomes us with open arms. And let me say this, when we stand before our maker, as each day every one of us will do, as one day every one of us will do, and we say, Lord, my life was such a mess. I'm so sorry. There were so many lost opportunities. There were so many things I did that were wrong. He will say, really? I've forgotten that. Just come in and share paradise with me. I mean, it's remarkable that Jesus forgets all our wrongs. Maybe if we're loving, we should forget all everybody else's wrongs. I, I understand that in mining villages in the north of England, there are still divisions, sometimes within families, I mean serious divisions, between those who supported the miners' strike and, and those who were called scabs and went back to work. I mean, that is so sad. It is so sad. It's 30-odd years ago. I hope that we won't have the same for those who voted one way in the referendum and those who voted the other way, and people will be saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you voted out, didn't you? Yeah, look at the mess you've created, or whoever. I don't know. What I do know is that we're never going to get this right. We can only try, but we're never going to get it right. And isn't it interesting that Paul, um, in Corinth, where they polished copper, that was one of the things they did, to make mirrors, but of course the reflection was a puzzling reflection. It wasn't quite right. Um, I, I want you to know that I look in mirrors these days and I feel the same, you know. No, they, 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 they seem to distort my body image in a way that's not appropriate. I'm, I, I know exactly what Paul meant, you know. You look at it and you think, no, this isn't a right image. Um, one day, Paul says, the image won't be like that. It won't be cloudy. Then, he says, we'll see perfectly. We'll see face to face. Love will come naturally. For now, for all of us, it needs to be a learned behavior. That's why Paul says, love one another. And 
I think it's interesting that the Apostle John, who lived, we understand, to a great age and went to Ephesus and finished his, his ministry in Ephesus, when he was so old and frail that they had to carry him into church, this was the last living person who'd encountered the Lord Jesus. Think how special he must have been. They carried him in on a beer, you know, on a, on a stretcher. And he was presumably suffering slightly from dementia or losing his memory. And I can identify with that increasingly, I find. His only message to people was simply, little children love one another. Little children love one another. That was the final blessing that the aged apostle John gave to people. Not a bad blessing. And so it's my message to you. Love one another. And I want this to be a practical sermon. And that's why I've given each of you a prayer that you can pray through the week. You can Pin it on your fridge, you can stick it in your study, you can fold it up and carry it around in your purse or wallet. A prayer from 1 Corinthians 13. And with this, let us end. I'll read the prayer and you can pray it silently in your hearts. Lord Jesus Christ, help me to be patient and kind, not jealous, not boastful, nor proud or rude. Help me not to demand my own way, nor to be irritable, and not to keep a record of wrongs. Help me not to rejoice about injustice, but enjoice whenever the truth wins out. Help me never to give up, never to lose faith, always to be hopeful in every circumstance. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.